This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 14th, 2019, the DP Arts MB edition. I am said DP, David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me from New Haven is Emily Bazelon of Yale University. Oh, not, not New, Haven, New Haven, Boston. But that's but fine. But she's often in New Haven. But she's <laughs> in New England. New England is just like a one small region up there. Hello, Emily Bazelon of Yale, the New York Times Magazine. Hello. And uh, chuckling in his usual warm, <laughs> chuckly way is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hello. So, John, did you sleep out last night for Covenant House? That's tonight. You're sleeping out tonight. That's tonight, yeah. Is there a way yeah. that people could hear this and still support it? Oh, you're so sweet. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess if they just go to my Twitter page, it's the pinned um, tweet, uh, and that'll take you to the Donors Choose uh, website uh, where they can donate. Um, people have been extremely generous, and it's been really lovely to see. On today's Gabfest, will the first public impeachment hearing change the debate about impeachment then be still my beating heart michael bloomberg michael as i like to call him is preparing to run for president as is deval patrick who i don't call anything at all then the supreme court seems ready to endorse to support to validate the president's plan to end daca the dreamers program is that going to happen is that a legit decision from the court if it does come plus we'll have cocktail chatter on wednesday we saw the first public hearings in the impeachment investigation by the house of representatives of president trump the house intelligence committee chaired by adam schiff held their first hearings they invited bill taylor and george kent to testify publicly what were the highlights emily well, there were two new pieces of information, important, I would say, pieces of information from Bill Taylor. One was that an aide of his, who I think now the Democrats are trying to schedule to testify, that this aide overheard a phone call between Gordon Sondland, the um, ambassador to the EU, and President Trump. This is the day after Trump's call with Zelensky. And on the overheard phone call, Trump is asking Sondland about this uh, hope he has that the Ukrainians are going to investigate Joe Biden and his son. And so it seems like confirmation that this is really what's on Trump's mind as he's withholding the military aid. The second piece of information is that the Ukrainians were aware that this military aid was being held up as they were trying to figure out what to do and how to handle the pressure they were getting from Trump and Giuliani. 
I think we already knew that that timeline was falling into place. The Ukrainians had this knowledge of the withheld military aid earlier. And maybe John will remember which other witness told us that. But I felt like that defense that Trump and his allies have put out there has already been falling apart. And so just to play it out, the defense was, well, this couldn't have been a real pressure campaign because the Ukrainians didn't even know that they weren't uh, receiving this aid. It seems like that is just not the case. Yeah. yeah. Well, so first of all, we should step back um, and remind ourselves where we were last week, because even this line of argument, I think, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, slots into a weird defense. It slots into the defense that it didn't happen and if ukraine didn't know about it it wasn't illegal or it wasn't wrong at various stages ukraine doesn't need to know that the president is doing what's alleged if the president is doing what what's alleged and it just hasn't gotten to that point in the in the activity so that's just one one uh quick thing about this another important thing is that there is jim jordan the um congressman from ohio has said uh, who made the the case that Emily outlined just now has said, you know, the, the investigation was never launched. What wasn't launched was the announcement of the investigation. Uh, there has been testimony or there will be testimony and there's been reporting that, in fact, the announcement was about to be made, that an interview between the Ukraine president and Fareed Zakaria on CNN was actually scheduled and he was going to announce this. And then because the aid started to flow, uh, that interview was canceled. But On the phone call with the president that summarized in what the president calls the transcript, the Ukraine president promises to do the investigation. So, in fact, he did make a promise to the president that he would do the investigation. So when Congressman Jordan says that there was no investigation, well, he had promised the president that it would exist. But what all the wrangling was about and what the Democrats point to is the wrangling was about making a public uh, announcement about this, which they argue was actually more important to the president because he wasn't genuinely interested in a corruption investigation. He was interested in a public statement that would hurt Joe Biden in the context of the presidential campaign. And and just to go back to the obvious point, which is that attempted extortion, an extortion which fails for whatever reason, is still an attempted extortion. Like because just because the 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 full force of it is not carried through, it is still an attempted extortion. And and in fact, for Ukrainian soldiers who died during the period when the aid was held up, you could argue it was a life or death decision. It may have been that that aid and equipment and training that might have saved lives among the Ukrainian army uh, were lost because this was held up for time. It's not enough to say there's no, the quid pro quo didn't wasn't carried forward. I mean, I think it also matters that the reason this extortion plot fell apart was not that Trump had a change of heart and suddenly thought, oh, my God, what am I doing? I can't abuse my power in this way. The reason it fell apart was that they started getting caught and Congress got really mad that this aid that they had authorized was being withheld. And it started to rattle the diplomatic corps so much that there you know, was a whistleblower complaint. I mean, to me, in just sort of assessing the situation, that makes a big difference. Yes. So just three things, quick things that also got fuzzied up in the first day of testimony, but that matter. One is that the aid, as Emily just said, was authorized by Congress and signed by the president. So if the president was as interested in corruption as his defenders say, there had already been an investigation into Ukrainian corruption, which is a prerequisite for releasing that money. But also the president was, in this case, he had, president has free reign, uh, extraordinary reign, not total free reign on national security issues. But in this one, he was constrained by a law that he had already sent. And also 
that there are some of the president's def- defenders have said, well, this is just the, the Taylor and Kent who testified on Wednesday are just unhappy about the direction in U.S. foreign policy under Donald Trump. Certainly that's the case, you could tell. But this isn't just about a dispute over policy. This is about whether a president who is given his power by the people, used the power in the service of the national interest or used it in his own private interest. And that, it seems to me, was another thing that got kind of fuzzied up. It is so maddening to hear this absolute bullshit about oh, the concern about corruption and the president's legitimate concern, the, the pretense. It would be so much better if everyone were just honest about it all. Like, I'm not saying it would have it would mitigate uh, the crime that was committed or the wrong that was committed against the country. But this level of hypocrisy and lying about the, the, the pretense that, oh, the, there is an actual attempt to constrain corruption and that's what this administration is, is cares about is so it's such an insult to all of us. We all know this is being done for purely political purposes. That is the only reason it's happening. That's the only reason anyone cares about it. And like, let's just come out and say it and just like, let's agree that that's why it's being done. And you, do, you decide whether that's an impeachable offense or not. But to to put this, this, this kind of complete Potemkin excuse up there is maddening. Um, I think that falsity, though, is crucial, because if you're going to argue that, OK, this happened, but it wasn't worth impeaching, you have to hold on to that facade. Right. And that is where they're going to end up, because they the facts are going to drive them there. Well, but, the, no, but they've, but they've ended up at the – Mulvaney has already done it. I mean, they've already conceded the political piece of it. Mulvaney has already said we did it for political reasons. Well, and then they took it back, right? I mean, they keep sort of circling around this. But if they give up on the idea of like, oh, this was really about corruption, it becomes harder to argue that this was acceptable conduct and we just shouldn't worry about it very much. Well, it, it but there are people – this is what's uh, still so, so – uh, messy is that there are some Republicans who say, nope, he cared about corruption. This had nothing to do with the Bidens. And there are others who say he shouldn't have tried to target Biden, but it's not impeachable. They still haven't gotten the story straight. And the president, in fact, on Sunday tweeted to Republicans, don't don't say there was anything wrong. It was a perfect phone call. There was nothing there was nothing wrong here. I think the problem with the corruption thing is that there's not a large body of evidence showing the president with deep-seated passion for corruption, A. B, if you well, ask experts... John, on the you know, contrary, there's a ton of evidence that the president has a deep-seated passion for corruption. It's his specialty. Yeah. Uh, he cares more about corruption than he does about anything else. Anyway, um, but I digress. Um, the... Uh, Actually, that was Congressman Hines's point was not that the president was trying to end corruption, but he was trying to aim corruption. I thought that was a uh, a clever a, a clever soundbite. But these two witnesses could have been used by Republicans to make the corruption case. In other words, they know quite a lot about corruption in Ukraine. And presumably, if the president were as interested as his defenders say, the two people involved in Ukraine policy would say, oh, yes, I remember all those meetings we had at the, at the agency and interagency level where, where we were told about how much the president cared about corruption and how much he wanted to button back the, the, the oligarchs. And I remember, but there was no pre-record like that because the president has not shown uh, uh, a, a broad interest in Ukraine corruption, at least that ever came to them. And they would be two people who would, who would probably... Uh, who would probably know about it. So it does seem, um, it's a, it seems to be a post hoc rationalization. Um, but all Republicans need for their own purposes is a sufficient post hoc ra- rationalization to get through the process. So, Emily, the Republican strategy seems to be several, there are several elements, but one key element that came out on Wednesday was 
this is all hearsay. This is all hearsay. It's secondhand. We don't know. You didn't hear it. You never talked to the president. You, you're alleging this conspiracy orchestrated by the president. You've never talked to him. And, and the people you've, you're, you're citing some aide of yours who overheard a conversation, really? Is that all you've got? It's hearsay. Uh, what are the problems with that? I mean, there's so, there's so many problems with it. I think it's actually a fairly effective uh, uh, dilatory, play. stalling, rhetorical play. But it, from a substantive perspective, what's wrong with it? Well, the main thing is that the people who have the firsthand knowledge, the White House is blocking from testifying. So Mick Mulvaney, Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, uh, the question of whether John Bolton is going to testify, he's kind of playing footsie right now with the idea of like, oh, I need a court order in order to show up. No, he does not need a court order. There's no law or precedent from the Supreme Court suggesting that he can't show up for a congressional subpoena. Now, the White House could then try to block certain lines of questions by invoking executive privilege. But um, that's a different matter. That's about specific questions, not the idea of showing up at all. So if none of the main players who were talking to President Trump are going to testify, then yes, you're going to have this outer circle, less inner circle of people who had knowledge of what was happening and who become the main witnesses for it. Right. And but and then if you were a Democrat who was in that position, because it seems that the Democrats are not right now going to pursue the the very languorous court process of forcing people under subpoena to testify or trying to get a court to order them to testify. Uh, what what should the Democrats do about this Republican defense? I mean, I think they should point it out. They should say, well, if you want the people who were in the room with President Trump, like, hand them over. We're eager to talk to them. We would love to hear what they have to say, right? And without that testimony, the question is whether there's enough damning facts piling up that you don't really need the principles involved to confirm all of it. Right. I mean, the Republican defense is this is a big deal to impeach and remove the president. And so we should be hearing from the people in the room. Okay, well, either you give us the people in the room or you're not that defense becomes less potent because you're the ones who are preventing us from hearing those people's accounts. But if you're being a smart strategist, wouldn't we all agree that the smartest thing to do is to say this is all hearsay? These people weren't on, you know, they weren't in the room and then never provide the people who were in the room. Yeah, I yeah. think it's the best they I mean, have, def- right? It's definitely going to work in the sense that he's he's certainly not going to be removed from office in this process. And this is a, a one of several useful covers they have given themselves, one of several fig leaves that they're they've, they're sewing into a loincloth of defense. What? <laughs> so, John, it was a, you know, what was described yesterday by Taylor and Kent was breathtaking and it. I think somebody somebody who had missed the last five years and was brought in to hear this testimony would be like, oh, my God, the president of the United States did this. This is what's happening in the United States. My God, he will be removed in moments. Um, but obviously, we the rest of us have lived through these past some years of the Trump presidency and of the extremely short half-life of Trump scandals and of the extremely uh, low impact of these these TV moments and the, the non-durability of these moments because they're these counter-narratives, these two completely different narratives. So is there anything that, that you see happening or that happened yesterday or that you foresee happening that, that could be a breakout moment that does shift how people see things? A couple of things. I mean, um, you know, this is a... This is a, I don't know what my, this is either a jigsaw puzzle or it's a marathon or 
But I mean, we were this yesterday's hearing, like in all hearings and all these things, is is to is to describe one piece of the puzzle, um, and then presumably through the rest of the process, all the other pieces will be put together, and the and the picture that's described, you know, the sea the the, the seashore scene that the puzzle is supposed to be, uh, they've laid out, and then all the pieces get put together, and you see if it looks like a seashore or it looks like you know a mountainscape, and but but that's a long process, and what I think the Trump campaign in 2015 all the way through his campaign and now the Trump presidency has done, I think, effectively is condition people in the press and in general, uh, the the citizenry, to uh, evaluations and momentary applause meters and approval ratings. Um, So when uh, Eric Trump talks about his father's presidency or his father's campaign and what was so amazing, the first thing he talks about is the ratings. Yesterday, the White House press secretary talked about how it was a boring hearing. Uh, Other defenders of the president talked about how it was so boring. So that we've come into this funny place where if something is boring, it's not valid. Oh, boy, that's going to get us and we're going to be in awful shape if that is true. But that's not just this president. That's, of course, been everything that's happened starting in the television age. So I think one thing that was the most interesting yesterday, uh, which connects what I just said with with I think we were saying earlier, is this I, the phone call that Emily mentioned when we started, which is the overheard phone call between Sondland and the president. Now, we have to – this is literally a game of telephone, so we have to, to kind of <laughs> triangulate and make sure this is right, okay, because here you have Taylor describing what an aide told him that he overheard from Sondland to the president. So there's a lot of ways in which this cannot turn out to be what uh, Taylor said it was. But let's imagine it was. Well, the reason that's important, of course, is it because it puts – more detail on the central character here, which is the president, being fixated on Biden, which again is this instance in, in turning American statecraft not towards uh, American interests, but in terms to his private interest. And so if you get a couple more pieces of data like that, which are uh, show this direct connection between the president and, and his um, uh, fixation on his likely opponent, then you have, you know, th- then the Democrats' case is strengthened. So that was one moment yesterday, while it was not um, pyrotechnic or, or cinematic, it was, I think, substantively uh, useful for those trying to build the case against the president. Um, I Before we get to the end, there are three points that really disturb me. I certainly think this is uh, worthy of impeachment. What What is described, the behavior of the president as described, is worthy of impeachment. And it is an important investigation to have. And it's absolutely shocking that that uh, U.S. foreign policy has been suborned unto the president's personal interest in this way. There are three things that are so disturbing about this process that just worry me for the future of the country. And I just want to put the marker out. And it's, it's all the fault of the president and his supporters, I would note. It's not the fault of the investigation. One is the lack of cooperation from the executive branch and the refusal to treat this as a legitimate investigation, to cooperate with it, to provide witnesses, to provide evidence, to answer questions, is puts at risk the very notion that there, the separation of powers can survive and that the, that the legislature can exist in, in, a, in a form that can check the executive or that there can be any check on the executive. That's number one. Number two, there is no agreement on a set of facts that there is a partisan media on the right that has decided it will not treat the facts that are being laid out in an honest and straightforward way and instead treating them in this absolutely 
honky tonk, bizarre, like let's just let's let's chaff it up, let's pretend that things are obviously that are untrue or true way, and causing there to be no shared set of beliefs around what is happening or shared set of knowledge. That's super disturbing. And finally, and maybe the most importantly, is the discrediting of public servants, mm-hmm. of bureaucrats, of people who work for government, these systematic attacks on Kent and Taylor and uh, others who have been involved in this investigation, people who've worked selflessly and admirably in the national interest for Republican presidents, for Democratic presidents. Uh, that's dam- These are all things that is damage we are doing for a generation forever in this country if we allow this to go forward. And so I'm not saying that the impeachment process is causing it. The impeachment process is revealing why it's revealing this in, in starkest um, relief. I would turn your first point uh, a quarter and say I think it's actually the legislature that should have enough self-respect to stand up for its own role in, in life. Um this is something yes. that passed with bipartisan right. support well and the said. president signed. You know, they, yeah. you, as a member of Congress, I mean, it's extreme. When you go back and read the way Congress used to behave when people had backbones, I mean, Spiro Agnew tried to convince a, an Idaho senator um, to vote with the president. And he said, I was going to vote with the president, but now I'm not. And anytime you try and pressure me, I will vote the opposite way you want. Now go away. This is a, an ally of the president's. This is a, a fellow Republican. But they believed that they had some of their own powers and they represented the country in its most diverse form in the House and the Senate and that that was necessary in a separation of powers. That is, that's gone. So that's one thing that has nothing to do with left or right. It just has to do with the different branches. And then the other point you make, I think, is really, really, really important. And I think it's a part of the, um, the conversation here, either in the impeachment context or the or the or the general election. This is the first time we've had an impeachment when there's a re-election uh, coming. And that's, I think, the idea, Emily, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, with the idea of vicarious liability. The president, in taking the position, in doing the initial thing, but then also in taking the position he has, um, has caused people to rush to his defense. And in so doing, they have, some of them, um, attacked people like Taylor and Kent, who, whatever you may think of them, are public servants who've dedicated their lives to America, to both parties, to the idea of America, and who represent, and they said this in their opening statement, um, the stuff that animates the American government all around the world and 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 animates service in all of those jobs where you don't get any public praise, but you do it for... Um, for your sense of, of patriotism and your sense of American values. I really agree with you that this is a there, there's a real cost here and you saw it in the in the opening statements of the two men who talked about why they do what they do and why they believe what they believe. Gafet listeners, we have our annual conundrum show coming up live at the Foxy Fox Theater in Oakland, California on December 18th and we are being joined by a special guest Adam Savage. The myth, the legend of Mythbusters is going to join us as a guest to help us solve some of the true, the true mysteries, the true problems that Americans contemplate, that they grapple with every day. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for our December 18th show in Oakland and tweet to us with your conundrum at hashtag conundrum at SlateGabFest or go to our slate.com slash conundrum page and you can fill out a form there where you can submit your conundrum. So how was my week, you ask? My week was pretty darn good because I discovered that my crush, my beau ideal of politics, the Dorothy to my Toto, 
Michael Bloomberg is planning to enter the Democratic primary for president. <sighs> what a day. What a week. What a month. By the time you're what done, I'm going to be just a puddle on the floor of rage and sorrow, and I won't be able to say anything. <laughs> also, Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, close friend of President Obama, is also going to enter the Democratic primary. So, Emily, what do these two likely entries signal? Both of these gentlemen passed up a chance a year ago to get into the Democratic primary as it was, as it was getting going. Obviously, they see something. They see a possibility. Or they are concerned about something. So what? What is it? What is it? See something, I, say something. <laughs> I think they are concerned about Joe Biden's candidacy, and as they watch Joe Biden fade and flicker, as he has done in his presidential campaigns in the past, they think, "Do we have someone in the field who can really unite the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party, and then reach out to some of the independents who presumably the Democrats need to win the White House?" I think this is also nervousness on the part of some of the big donors in the Democratic Party who don't always have the wisest judgment. And it's important to note that 75% of Democratic voters feel perfectly satisfied with the choices that they currently have. So this is a kind of top-down set of um, concerns. And, you know, for Michael Bloomberg, it's really just like Michael Bloomberg deciding to get in. And I'm sure there are lots of consultants whispering in his ear because they can make a lot of money um, if he decides to run. What I would give for Deval- a whisper in Michael Bloomberg's ear. Oh, my God. No, just make, just, <laughs> I'm going to my playing. sentence, but I don't know why. Just playing Deval- around. Patrick, one <laughs> imagines that some of the Obama people are talking to him because he is close with Obama and they weren't necessarily super excited about Biden as a candidate to begin with. So that seems like it has maybe more substance to it, though I really wonder if someone who's been working for Bain Capital for lo these many years since he got out of politics is going to be able to do all that uniting that um, is supposedly what needs to happen. Michael Bloomberg, like, yes, he had his technocratic, effective moments in New York. He was so terrible on stop and frisk and criminal justice policy. He has never for one second reckoned with any of that. And indeed, he continues to defend it. And so for me, Michael Bloomberg is just like, I just it it pains me a great deal to imagine that this is how he is going to light his money on fire. Um, John, to Bloomberg, we're going to we're going to get to that in a minute, Emily. We'll talk about his lighting his money on fire in a second. Um, and his Are you sure record. he's not but just giving Bloomberg you all like, that money? Maybe you have been whispering in his ear. And this oh, my is all God, that would be so great. If you I was even need a job by Bloomberg. What a thought. <laughs> I support him and he could pay me. That would be that's the best of all possible worlds. I'm but kidding. We'd have I'm, to dissolve the show because I would be so angry with you. I'm just I'm just a note. This is all uh, just not kidding. real. But so Michael Bloomberg, uh, like many billionaires, John, has been at the butt end of attacks by Elizabeth Warren, who's making a wealth tax a big deal in her campaign and by Bernie Sanders, too. And do you think um, we already have one billionaire in the Democratic race, Tom Steyer? Do you think that Bloomberg's entry helps this case of Warren's? Or uh, I I feel like the Bloomberg candidacy is really a gift to Elizabeth Warren, even though I'm sure Bloomberg Mm -hmm. intends it as the exact opposite. Well, implicit in it is that she's doing well enough that 
that he's worried and also implicit is that Joe Biden is not doing well enough. And so he's worried. Uh, and that's also true of the Deval Patrick campaign. So that's two things that help Warren and hurt Biden. So and to the extent that it helps Warren um, directly and then sort of secondarily, it helps her directly by, you know, uh, thinking she's doing well enough and helps her secondarily by by damaging one of her rivals. Um uh, so I think that's all good. I think the problem is that the polls show and, you know, my gosh, bring in, you know, an enormous um, grain of salt about the polls. But but they have shown a steady kind of slow increase for Warren that does seem to have plateaued a little bit. So so the question then is, um, has she hit a kind of ceiling and what does that mean? You know, you can hit a ceiling and then move on. That is something her candidacy um has to worry about. But what this means now for the Democratic race um, is a lot more messiness going around. And uh, I don't quite see how it gets resolved. Um, I mean, you're going to have an... Because now you have... Deval Patrick basically is probably not going to compete in Iowa, um, I think. And then you have Bloomberg being a bit, just a big money participant and that's just a lot of energy in the system that can bounce all kinds of different ways. So I, it's it's going to be fascinating. Um, and and the, the the argument, the best argument that that Bloomberg could make, is one that nobody wants to hear. But the best argument is basically, presidents can only focus on two or three things. One of them they have to focus on is national security and covert operations. So that's one taken off the table. The other two, if you believe that climate change is existential, okay, the president's going to have to deal with that. That's two. And three, if you think economic uh, disparities need to be reordered, then maybe that's the third, although it's quite hard to do outside of some kind of deal with uh, Congress to pass some legislation, which makes it more durable and more broadly shared. So in today's political environment, that would be a super heavy lift. Um, but if at least on the first two, uh, Bloomberg could say, look, I can get things done. I've been able to get things done. And while all the issues that Democratic primary voters care about are basically a very small percentage of what a president directly does. And what I will do is appoint people who care about these issues a lot, but that we know from experience presidents don't get to you don't get to actually do much on those issues. And that's the best case he can make. Nobody's going to like to hear that case because the primary is fought over the issues that presidents don't have either direct control over or don't have a lot of um, have. It's much messier than the things they do have direct control over. I want to I'm going to use the uh, balance of my time. I, I want to use some time. I do want to talk about Bloomberg substantively. So I think what Bloomberg does not bring to the table as a presidential candidate is pretty extraordinary, and I'm sure it will doom his candidacy. One, he is old. He's 77 years old. And he's not a young 77. He's an old 77. He he doesn't, he's not, I mean, he's a sharp guy, but he's not as sharp as he was at 67 or 57. And there's nowhere to go in that but down. So, so I right. think if you're concerned about an old candidate, you, Bloomberg has that problem worse than maybe anybody in the race, but um, but Biden himself, he does not have a great history around Me Too. There are things that he is alleged to have said to women in his employ, and in fact, claims that have been made, uh, complaints and and lawsuits suggest he doesn't have a fantastic record on issues that are really of concern to a lot of Democrats these days, and should be of concern to all of us. He is a rich guy who really lives like a rich guy: horses, islands, jets. Bloomberg just seems like a rich dude who is likes being really rich. 
stop and frisk, as Emily touched on, is devastating. It's a, it was a terrible policy that like severely impacted black and Latino men in particular in New York City uh, over many years. It was it was illegal, right, Emily? A judge made them basically, if not entirely stop yeah. it, but severely curtail it because, yes, it was a form of racial profiling, she found. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a loathed, grasping, illegal, and not very effective policy that created a huge amount of resentment. Okay. All true. Um, I just would note that if you were doing a any universe where you had a chief executive that you wanted to run a country well, he would be your clear number one draft pick. Like and with no one very close in second place, there is nobody who he was an extraordinarily successful self-made businessman who built a company, defeated uh, other people competing against him in the field, made markets more efficient, you know, you know, and create a huge amount of wealth uh, while doing it, and and huge contributions to how news and information is collected and gathered. He was an incredibly effective mayor of New York City. New York City got richer, more prosperous, much better run, public policy innovator left and right and center all over the place and, you know, and made mistakes. A stop and frisk was a mistake. So, but if you look at what New York was at the beginning of his mayorship and what it was at the end, there is no doubt that what he did and the people he appointed and what they did was extraordinary. It made the city, you know, the most successful and prosperous city in America. And he's an incredible philanthropist as well. What he has spent his money on post mayoral his mayorship and even during his mayorship has been really valuable and what he's done on guns and what he's done on climate has been effective and targeted and serious and ruthless the guy just knows how to get shit done in a way that almost nobody else in public life does and we i don't think he can be elected president i don't think he's a particularly good campaigner i think he, there are all sorts of ways in which he is he is anathema to this democratic field but I think we would be we would be foolish and short-sighted to to say he shouldn't participate in this primary or say he doesn't have the like the kind he hasn't earned the right to really make a serious run here because uh, I'm, I'm Emily, not, just, I'm just, sure. can I just do a little visual listener? Emily, <laughs> Emily is just like looking sort of patiently and then just right in an eye roll that was an extraordinary eye roll that you were unable to see. But I wish their eye rolls could be heard. Um, if only I roll could speak, uh, John. Go ahead. Uh, no, well, actually, we should just. If you do, you, are you dying to say something, or are you just eye rolling? I mean, the president is not the CEO. Like, if we were trying to choose our cold-blooded manager to implement other people's ideas, and we could be sure that some of his terrible ideas, and I would say. Um, you know, his his he has a real mix of values. Some of them line up with democratic priorities like gun violence and climate change, and some of them really don't. And I don't see anything that reassures me that the um, problems with his t- tenure in mayor in New York are things that he recognizes. So I just feel like this is not the right role for someone like him. I'm sorry. What is wrong with being a heterodox thinker in this world? He There's is nothing heterodox. wrong with being heterodox, but if you cause and, and, a great deal of harm to a whole community of people and you fail to recognize it, indeed, you continue to defend it long past the expiration date, long past when other people have admitted that this was not worth the cost, the human cost. That is a problem. Like, that's not heterodox. That's being really stubborn about something that you thought was a good idea and wanted to try that turned out to be terrible. But 
I agree that that was a bad policy, and he seems not to have come to any reckoning with it. But, but a, you're willing to cut him a very break. Long, I'm willing to cut him a break because he has a very long record of, of public service and public accomplishment and private service and private accomplishment. And so certainly I want to hear from him, and I think he should run. Every candidate has a trade-off. So the, the candidate who is a 10 on your values scale may not be very high up on the other scales that right. are a part of leadership. And that is either going to be a big problem if it's a presidency of crisis and a presidency of tough decision-making because somebody who's got the perfect values but hasn't seen the, the time in the batting cage facing lots and lots and lots of hard, difficult decisions of the kind a president makes, which are unlike any other kind of decision. But if you've had a history of making tough decisions, you've got some experience on this. You know, we don't know what the presidency is going to face, but you you make a compromise with any of the candidates. And so the question then is, are the compromises you would have to make on Bloomberg that much different with respect that these to the actual job they're going to do than the compromises you would make for the other kinds of candidates who may be great on one thing, but but have Bloomberg style deficiencies in the other characteristics that a president needs. I, I think. That yeah, I this is all fine. So well I win put, John. Because this person's candidacy is going nowhere. I also think it is very different to think of a Michael Bloomberg candidacy than Tom Steyer candidacy. And, and there's, this, there's this way in which people sort of dismiss Bloomberg, oh, you know, great big pile of money running for president. And it's not that. I mean, Bloomberg has a great big pile of money. I'm sure he will deploy it. He will hire lots of people. He will pay them a lot. He will spend a lot of money. He will buy a lot of ads. And it, there's a vanity to it. Of course, there's a vanity. But there's a vanity in the service of somebody who has a record of enormous accomplishment and could can make a legitimate case, which I don't think Steyer can, that, hey, I've done this. I've done this a version of this job in the private sector, in the public sector, in philanthropy. I would do it better and different than other people here. You should at least listen to me. Can, can I ask what you guys think of Deval Patrick and just add this one thing you talked about speaking so far in the candidacy, so, um, the the kind of rhetorical skills of a candidate have not been overwhelming of anybody on the on the stump. I mean, they sure they can fire up their voters, but that's not where, you know, real rhetorical greats have been. They've been able to capture an entire country. And though we totally overvalue the power of rhetoric in uh, presidency, it's not a totally unimportant part of the job. Whoever the next president is, if it's not Donald Trump, will have this repair work to do on the country and just kind of speak to the country. And that's one of the things people say Deval Patrick has and brings to the race. Do you think anybody cares about that in Democratic politics? Or is it, like all primary races, really focused on the core things that the, the party bases care about? I think people care about that. I mean, I think if Patrick can fire up audiences and you know, light up the debate stage, people will take note. And there might be space for a new person to come in. It's kind of crazy, given how many options there are. Uh, and you could imagine that Kamala Harris and Corey, Cory Booker are seething over this because they are both offering candidacies that aren't, like, wholly different um, from Deval Patrick. I mean, Pete Buttigieg could say the same thing in his own youthful, weird way, I suppose. If Patrick can capture people's imaginations, then I think that could make a difference. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And today, 
our bonus segment will be about the crisis in student journalism. Maybe not a crisis. Maybe that's not the right word. But the controversies in student journalism as embodied by two uh, fights at Harvard and Northwestern over student newspapers. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Dreamers case was at the Supreme Court this week. It didn't actually seem to be a case about Dreamers. What was it a case about? Well, it's a case about whether President Trump can rescind the order that was sparing dreamers from detention and deportation. That was an order that President Obama put place after trying very hard to reach a legislative compromise with Congress. And so, you know, normally one president can enact an executive order and the next president can withdraw it. That is probably, sadly, to me and for the dreamers what is going to happen in this case. But the Trump administration, as is so often true, did this in a kind of um, helter-skelter fashion. Instead of saying, we don't think it's a good policy idea to spare dreamers for deportation, they put the whole weight of their decision to withdraw this order on the idea that it was illegal to begin with. That theory comes from a challenge not actually to the Dreamers, but to another order President Obama signed that spared and created kind of work authorization status for close relatives of Dreamers. That other program, which is called DAPA, not DACA. 
The problem is that while there was an appeals court ruling that said President Obama had gone too far, the Supreme Court split four to four on that case. So we don't have any definitive decision about this related program, much less the one that affects the dreamers themselves. And it did seem like the Trump administration was basically trying to dock responsibility instead of saying, we don't care about saving the dreamers. They were saying, oh, there's nothing we could do here because President Obama broke the law. And so the argument before the Supreme Court, you know, the liberal justices who are very sympathetic to the dreamers were emphasizing that kind of weirdness in the Trump administration's approach. But the problem was a couple of years later, the Trump administration, when Kirsten Nielsen was uh, the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, she came in and signed a further order in which she added a very thin paragraph that did provide some policy justification. And so for the five conservative justices who are more, you know, amenable to the Trump administration's proclivities here, that provides a kind of rationale for letting the Trump administration go ahead. And, you know, basically, this is a fight, a legal fight over agency power and the 1940s law, the Administrative Procedures Act, which sets certain limits on how agencies can go about making decisions and then changing their decisions. But at bottom, this is a political matter. And when the country elected President Trump. The country gave him the power to run the Department of Homeland Security. And so even if this order were somehow to be stopped for this kind of technical reason, certainly the presidency has the power to make this change. It's just a matter of how they go about it. And I think really, if people don't like the idea of thousands of dreamers being deported, then they need to elect a different president. Building on what Emily just said, there is this way in which this is a uh, this is an optics fight, which is that the Trump administration could easily get rid of this policy, but to get rid of this policy, it would have to come out and say, we're getting rid of this policy that helps dreamers. And instead, they, they're choosing this way where they can deflect blame and deflect responsibility and say, oh, it's Obama's fault, it's the law's fault, it's Congress's fault, it's not us that's getting rid of it. We, we just, it's, it's insupportable under right. current law. And so it just can't be done. Regrets. Sorry. Sorry, dreamers. We'd love to help you, but we can't. It's a it's a way of don't of, of avoiding responsibility for it. And I think there is there is this um, I'm not sympathetic. I think this is a, a very was a very good policy and it's a humane policy and it's obscene that we would get rid of it. And it's dumb that the Trump administration will now spend resources targeting the most useful kind of people who are here under these circumstances, the most innocent kind of people. Uh, So it's bad government. But they are not wrong that the law and Congress, that Congress has has ducked a responsibility here, that Congress could perfectly well step step forward and make life uh, clearer for dreamers and, and set up some sort of path where they could stay in the United States uh, under certain circumstances, even without a path to citizenship, and they've they've not done it. Now it's you know they haven't done it because largely because Republicans don't want to put an immigration win on the books for Democrats. But uh, it is true that that Congress has really Congress for the past thirty years has essentially not managed to get anything done on immigration. That's a big problem. You know, if you had a president who. Uh had a kind of larger view about the reforms needed in government and thought, you know, the legislature is the place that these these uh, questions should be adjudicated and answered. And I'm going to use the power of my office 
not to tell them what to do, to basically to tell them to go do it, to get to stop messing around here. Republicans have have not um, embraced this also because they don't um, they don't want to have a nightmare in their own party because there's obviously um you know there was comprehensive immigration reform passed in the senate and it broke down in the house there were various attempts to try to make it go back um you know to try to get to president trump to to do as several different people suggested to him a kind of nixon goes to china where he made a kind of grand deal or a deal that included the dreamers plus some other things um and he retreated each time uh when he got blowback from his base um if you if you had a president who's who came in and said Congress must deal with this because we can't have this be co- keep going back and forth in executive orders and having basically being a kind of weird back and forth between the executive and the judicial, um, that would be it would be great to see that because basically this is a problem that should be handled by Congress um, and isn't being and um, doesn't seem to be able to be handled in the foreseeable future. Um, and it's just one more way in which we're stuck. And then, and having a new president, I don't think is going to change the dynamic of of the Senate um, right. or the House. So, uh, I mean, unless the new president brings in with them a huge, uh, you know, wave of reform, uh, and 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 members of Congress are elected along with that. And it's kind of crazy, right? Because doesn't eighty percent of the country support? deportation relief for dreamers and 80 percent of the country also is in favor of border security i mean whatever that means to people it just seems like there is a compromise to be had here and congress can't find it because it's so polarized well and and if you had a i mean this president could have done it easily if he if he had the pain threshold on this issue that he has on so many others i mean imagine if he wanted to be as disruptive in this issue as he is in so many other ways um he could tell those members of his own party for the purposes of making a big deal and for the purposes of getting, you know, half a loaf or 80% of a loaf, he could have deployed a lot of energy towards trying to do something, which would have been hugely risky, but he's done lots of risky things so far. Um, and and he would have, in, when you think of who has leverage in the in the system as it stands right now, he has the most leverage because of his relationship with this issue and his base and so um, it's a it's a missed opportunity to use the bully pulpit and and to use his strength within his own party. You know, I mean, I think one reason why, as we learned this week, is that his chief advisor on immigration, Stephen Miller, is fundamentally a white supremacist, white nationalist, as we got from the reveal of a bunch of emails that he sent in 2015 and 2016. It's the the person who is the architect of the policy around immigration does not he is not one of the 80 percent who want immigration who want uh, deportation relief for dreamers well i think he, there's no evidence that the president diverts uh, in his views from miller on those on those points emily last question on this the, the court will issue its ruling let's assume it's in favor of the trump administration sometime early next year correct and then that will be in the teeth of the campaign sometime in june probably maybe earlier so into the teeth of the presidential campaign do you think there's any chance that this DHS starts to actually deport dreamers or will they just find a way to kind of push this forward past election day so they're not, you know, taking uh, doctors and teachers out of their communities and sending them back to countries they've never been to? I mean, that's a matter of prosecutorial discretion, right, which kind of goes back to the root of all of this. And if they want to defer the deportations to spare themselves that kind of election 
period coverage, they can put off the deportations. But then what's the point of rescinding the order? There you go. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily Bazelon, when you're having a delicious rum-based cocktail, when you're thinking tropically in this winter weather, what are you going to be drinking and chattering about? I want to recommend two new books that I have thoroughly enjoyed. One of them is a collection of poetry called Felon by my friend Dwayne Betts. It's really wonderful. It's gotten a ton of attention. I thought it was just a joy to read. And also, you know, obviously, as it's dark moments, it's a book called Felon. But there's a tremendous amount of kind of hope along the way in these poems. And I really recommend it. And the second book is actually a book that Dwayne told me to read. And he was right. It's called The World Doesn't Require You. It's a book of short stories by Rian Amalkar Scott. And it's just this interesting foray into a kind of made-up Black community and the characters there, which um, which I... I recommend. John Valjean, what do you chatter about? I'm chattering about the most recent Pew Research Center poll. It's not that recent. It came out in early October, but um, on American attitudes and partisanship. And it confirms everything we know. Three years ago, they did a, a study in 2016 and found that there was great more partisan division and animosity than, than before. And now they've three years later find that that animosity has only deepened. But it's interesting to th- see the ways in which it's happened, and uh, and it's a familiar, certainly to familiar to our listeners, that people are not just separate on the way they view things, but the way they view each other. So that the Democrats aren't just wrong, but that they're evil and un- unpatriotic, and and the same with um, that the same with Republicans, Democrats see them as as less moral than the majority of Democrats see them as less moral than than other kinds of people in the country. Also in this is that 73% of the public disagree over basic facts. David mentioned this earlier. And so that both sides agree by about the same numbers that, that we are in a situation now where nobody can even agree on basic facts. And what I wondered was whether this is an issue if the goal of a president is to see an urgent need in the country, come up with a plan for attacking it, and then try and convince half the, the country that you're right, which is a, a model of thinking about the presidency that George Reedy, who worked for LBJ, used to talk about doing. Is this something that we should seek to have presidents put at the top of their to-do list? You know, the fifth most important thing, the 10th most important thing, because there's a when you look at it, you could even see it as the gateway to all other conversations. You can't, or is it something that's just not going to be solved and therefore presidents should, should operate in that world rather than um, trying to operate in a way that fixes that world? And so uh, that's what it made me think about. But the Pew Report is, is, uh, makes interesting reading even if you don't seek to engage on that question. Uh, my chatter quickly is, uh, well, two quickly one. Uh, one is about a New York Times story on blue versus red cities or blue versus red metro areas. It's called Red and Blue Economies Are Heading in Sharply Different Directions. Very interesting piece in the Times which looked at the economic growth and the nature of the economic growth in different cities in the U.S. and found that, I mean, not unsurprisingly, that mostly cities are blue. Bluer cities have more college degrees, more diversity, much higher real estate prices, generally stronger economies, redder cities are whiter, they are more homogenous, they, the economic growth is still there, it tends to come from manufacturing jobs, there's a lot less job stability, cost of living is cheaper. And then there are certain kinds of cities which look like they should be blue but are red, so Provo, Utah looks like, if you look at it demographically, it should be 
a blue city, but it's red because it probably because it has a large Mormon population. El Paso, Texas looks like it should be red, but it's blue because probably because it has a large Hispanic population. Really interesting story that's worth a read about kind of the ways in which cities are different. Second quick uh, chatter. If you are going to be in Brooklyn or you can be in Brooklyn on Monday night, we're doing a really fun Atlas Obscura event for our new book. We have a, a new book, which is a updated edition I've talked about of our Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. And we're going to do a night of trivia and the world's wonders and taste some of the world's most amazing foods. And it's going to be really fun. So go to the Bell House on Monday night and you can sign up for that at Atlas Obscura. Listeners, what a great set of chatters this week. Keep them coming. Tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest. Uh, and I want to talk about one that Sarus Faravar sent us, Sarus, constant sender of really good listener chatters. This week he sends an, sends an L.A. Times story about a scientist named Art Shapiro, who's a California scientist, who has been counting the number of butterflies in California for 47 years. He set out to do this for five years. He was going to count the number of butterflies at a bunch of different spots in California. He just keeps doing it and keeps doing it and keeps doing it. It's a it's an amazing profile of a person who is just incredibly dedicated and as a result has compiled this monstrous and super useful and terrifying data set about butterflies in California, which are signal animals and sort of signal threat of climate change and the changing nature of, of the weather and of climate in California. So really moving profile. Also, James Kelly sent us a tiny little thing building off of our discussion of war dogs last week. The Texas, this is interesting, Texas just had a voter referendum which passed 93 to 7 that when police dogs and other police horses finish up their work, they are no longer going to be classified as government property and so that they can retire and live with their trainers. Until now, they've been classified as government property and thus could be destroyed or sold or auctioned. And now they they can instead uh, live out of retirement with the people who've taken care of them. So that's a nice thing that Texas did. Good for you, Texas. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth. Is editorial director, June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts. So many people helping. Rosemary helped me here in D.C. and Melissa. Stephanie Cohn is helping Emily in Boston. John, I don't even know where you are. Maybe Alan yeah, is helping maybe. you. <laughs> now Dustin Gervais is helping. Dustin Gervais is helping in you in, in New York. So th- just there's so many people helping. Everyone's helping. Come to our live show December 18th, our conundrum show in Oakland, California at the Fox Theater slate.com slash live for tickets for emily and john i'm david plotz thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week hello slate plus how are you uh we got some business today we're doing two things we're going to talk about college journalism and then i just i have to come back to my own challenge to myself i will be reciting where the wild things are, I have not thought about it, but I knew that. I had to, awesome! Mm, I'm going to set myself that. No, hell no, okay, no, no. I said I wasn't going to, and I didn't. I'm an, I'm a truth, truthful, honest person. It's like, what is in there? What is in the cavernous recesses of the plot's brain that is ever cheesier and holier every minute?
But let's start by talking about uh, this interesting crisis in college journalism. Emily, do you want to set the table or I can set the table on it? Yeah. So there have been two controversies in the last few weeks. The first one was at Harvard, where Harvard journalists for The Crimson, I believe that newspaper's called, they uh, were doing a story about... Like Crimson um, alums. <laughs> that's what I, my little dig. They were doing a story about ICE deportations, right? It was a protest about ICE. That was... It was a protest, a student protest of ICE. And the journalist decided to call ICE for comment about the protest. Students at Harvard were furious about this, said that this phone call, this request for comment, was going to put at harm, potentially, the student protesters and a whole bunch of student groups, groups of students of color, but also like the Harvard Democrats, all are, I think, boycotting the Crimson right now in protest of this decision. So that is sort of exhibit A. Exhibit B is at Northwestern, where Jeff Sessions was coming to speak. Students protested um, his talk. They came in through a back entrance. They were kind of tussling their way to get in. There was a student reporter who was there taking pictures. And then after the protest, student journalists used social media and the phone book to find contact information for some of the protesters and called them for comment. There was an uproar among the student protesters objecting to these basic tactics of journalism. The students, the journalists at the Daily Northwestern then issued an abject apology saying that they hadn't been uh, saying that they hadn't paid enough attention to the safety and well-being of their fellow students. They were really sorry. And then the dean of the journalism school wrote, I think, a very, um, I think I, as a professional journalist, I think lots of professional journalists were relieved to see him appear on the scene to say, you know, look, journalists should always be thinking about the way they go about doing their job and making sure that they are not causing discomfort to people if they can avoid it. Like they shouldn't be rude. They shouldn't be up in your face if there's another way to do it. But the dean was essentially defending the premise of using the phone book, of taking pictures, of recording events, which there was no other paper of record there to do that kind of reporting. You know, for me, looking at all of this, I feel protective of the student journalists. I feel bad for these kids at Northwestern who were sort of in whiplash mode, like they were taking it from these lefty protesters, and now they're taking it on Twitter from all these professional journalists who are accusing them of kind of selling out the basic ethos of the profession. I also don't really understand these claims that there is um, a threat to people's safety from... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.